Amen. You may take your seats, and as you're doing so, turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel. We return back to Samuel after a fairly lengthy hiatus. We come back, and we're really in the middle of the book of Samuel, as we know it, 2 Samuel now. And as you're turning there to chapter 1, let me tell you a little story that I'm fairly familiar with having taught a particular play for a number of years. Two men are coming back from uh, a battle, coming back from being victorious at war. The two particular men who are coming are fast friends, and they have been very notable in the great victory, the great victory over a rebel, a rebel who had sided with foreigners, Vikings, to wreak havoc upon his own country. And these two men led their own countrymen in the defeat of that rebel and the foreigners. And as they're coming back home, they are relishing the victory that had been given to them. And they come across three individuals, three strange-looking individuals, sometimes called three weird sisters, uh, three people who looked sort of like women, but we're not quite sure. We come to find out the further we go in this play that these three weird sisters are actually witches. And these witches meet the two who are coming off the battlefield with great predictions of great honor coming to them, particularly coming to one. And to one of these men, the greatest prediction that they give to him is that he would be king. And from that point on, there's something of a wrestling match within the soul and within the mind of that man. Would he be king without having to lift a finger, without having to do anything in particular? Or would he have to lift his finger? Would he have to become king through bloody means? Would he have to take the crown by murder? It's a question that he wrestles with. The man was Macbeth. And that sort of question is really, in a sense, the same question that good King David is facing where we find him in this story. Would he have to take the crown by violence? He's been tempted to take the crown from Saul by violence before, and yet God was gracious and spared him from blood guilt. Now, although he doesn't know the full story yet, Saul has what? Died. Will he now take the crown from an Amalekite, or will that Amalekite crown him? Give your attention to the reading of God's word. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, people fled from battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are, and are dead, and, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by, by chance, 
I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. When he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he would not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes, and he tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned, and they wept, and they fasted until evening for Saul, and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I'm a son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. Meaning, he had been in... Israel, he had been among the people of God. He had sojourned there. He would have known who Saul was supposed to be. I am a son of a sojourner in Amalekite. David said to him, How is it you are not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said, It should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Yassar. And he said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Your mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Your daughters, O Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. The word of God for the people of God. As I studied this chapter this week in the haze of this past week, I wonder, what's the point? Well, the, the big focal point seemed to come in, into clarity. It seemed to come clear soon enough. 
the loving grief of a waiting king. David was the, the great king who was unashamed to weep. Unashamed to weep tears of love. One who points us in that very act of lament, in that very act of love, deep, deep love, in that very act pointing us to the one who would weep before the tomb of his friend Lazarus. The one who would weep in the garden of Gethsemane. The one who would call the little children unto him and pronounce judgment upon those who would hurt little children. The one of tender mercies. In this very act, David points us to that greater David, Jesus, the weeping Messiah, the weeping king. That point seems pretty clear. And we'll get to it. But as I continue to meditate upon this chapter, more and more seem to just kind of tumble into my mind. So much so that I think there, there are actually at least three great series of lessons here in the text. Three great series of lessons that this text, this story, teaches receptive hearts. Lessons from lying, lessons from lamenting, lessons of love. And I pray these come from the text itself and that they don't come from tramadol, my pain medication. <laughs> if they don't come from the text, it is tramadol. <laughs> Let's look first at the story's lessons from lying. Now, fallen sinners such as ourselves, we don't need many lessons about how to lie, right? That seems to come pretty natural. It comes, to, comes with the turf of being a, a baby. You're soon finding yourself telling untruths. I don't mean lessons how to lie. I mean lessons that we can learn from the lying of this nameless Amalekite. Now when you hear, and hopefully since I paused when I read it, when I read Amalekite, when you hear that, I hope you don't have warm, fuzzy emotions and feelings. You're not supposed to. The Amalekites seem to be the harassers of God's people again and again and again and again. They seem to be those who are always trying to interfere with God's purposes. From the, from the Amalekite, Agag, and his great wickedness caused even Saul to hack him to pieces. From Agag to another very famous Amalekite, Haman. Haman, the foe of Mordecai and Esther and the Jews. Haman, who would hang on his own gallows. When we hear the word Amalekite, we're not to have warm, fuzzy feelings. We're not to have warm, fuzzy feelings about this Amalekite. This lying battlefield scavenger. This opportunistic schemer. This opportunistic schemer who had sojourned in the land of Judah and Israel, who had seen the battle take place and was close enough to where he could go and pull off stuff off of dead bodies. You see, we know what David does, and at this point, we know what happened to Saul. 
We know how he asked his armor bearer to kill him. The armor bearer wouldn't. So what did Saul do? Took his own life. We know this man is lying. Why is he lying? Because he's an opportunistic schemer. He's got a goal. What's his goal? Reward. He wants reward and maybe he wants a place in what he knows to be a coming new kingdom. Here's the first lesson from lying. Kingdom building is done through self-giving truth, never in self-serving lies. Kingdom building is never done through self-serving lies. This is kingdom wisdom. It's done through self-giving truth. And in so much, this wisdom is so different from worldly wisdom. And it's so easy to let worldly wisdom, wisdom creep in even into uh, how we interact in church and how we do church into kingdom business. For instance, and I will not name their names because of another lesson in this text, but I remember recently, I recall a couple of very large names within the evangelical world who ended up having padded their resumes to advance in popularity, to advance in the kingdom. The kingdom is not advanced, brothers and sisters, through self-serving lies. Meditate on that a bit. Meditate on this. The Amalekite received swift justice. David doesn't know he's lying to him, but David knows he's claiming to have done something very wicked, and that is strike down the Lord's anointed. And David executes judgment, and judgment falls swift. Don't go past that swiftly. Pause long enough to make this observation. You don't, I don't, so often see immediate swift judgment in this world, do we? Let's make it a little more pointed. We don't see swift, immediate judgment fall on us. Because if it did, my dear brothers and sisters, beloved, none of us would be alive at this moment. We don't see judgment falling so swiftly in our day, and for that we have much to give thanks. Much to give thanks for the tender mercies of our God. Yeah, I shouldn't have warm and fuzzy feelings about Amalekites who lie, but I shouldn't have warm and fuzzy feelings about God's people who lie. I shouldn't have warm and fuzzy feelings about myself in such a state. And I want to pause and say, thank you, Lord, that if I'm found in Christ, the judgment I deserve did not fall upon me. And it will never fall upon me because it fell upon the Lord Jesus Christ in my place. And I give you thanks. And I give you thanks also that you are a loving father 
who, yes, you, ch you chasten those that you love, but your chastisement is often so long in coming, for you are a long-suffering God. Be reminded of that long-suffering God. And be reminded not to take that long-suffering for granted. Particularly be reminded when you are tempted to serve yourself in ways that advance you. One last note. When that last lesson in lying. Lying to get is the opposite of truth that waits to receive. Lying to get more for you is the opposite of truth that waits to receive from the hand of an all-wise and all-good Lord. What does David do here? Does he say, Amalekite, put the crown on my head. Amalekite, put the armband on me, for I am the rightful king. No, he waits. If David can wait, so can we. So can you to receive your crown. Those are just some quick lessons from a liar. Now lessons in lamenting. Again, I'll be brief. At this point, we're primed, if we have been reading through, been studying through the book of Samuel, we are primed, we are set up to cheer that Saul has fallen. We're set up to, yay, Saul's dead. We're set up to do that because we've seen how he has treated David throughout these years. But the story and David do not let us cheer. Call us to lament. Lamenting, not laughing, is the right thing, is the noble thing to do when we see the downfall of such a fallen one like Saul. Be wary of your own sinful heart that is quick to gloat when somebody who's hurt you is brought down a peg or two. Be wary of a culture that goads us into gloating over the tragedies of others. Even evangelical leaders who padded their resumes for advancement. Be quick to lament, not to laugh. Secondly, see the value of thoughtful lament. In grief, and you know this if you've had a deep grief, in grief our words and our emotions get all mangled up and they seem to come, come bobbling out in, in incoherent sobs and fits. And I'm sure David knew such incoherency, such sobbing. But notice what he does. 
He deliberately stops. He composes himself, and not merely himself. What does he do? He composes a lament. His pain, it becomes what? It becomes poetry. And we would do well to pause and to, and to observe and to see what he does and by grace follow in his path. When you're going through a deep, dark valley of grief, pause and compose your words. Write them out. Write of your anguish of soul and heart. Write of your deep and abiding love for the one you lost. That can be cathartic. Take the time to do it. It can be healing balm for your weary and hurting soul, but it can also be exemplary for others. And it can be a great tool to come back to again and again and again because if you've gone through grief, you know how it is, don't you? Sometimes it seems to, oh, it's calmed down. It's sort of like being at the, uh, the Gulf of Mexico, Pensacola or Panama City Beach. And that water is just kind of calmed down and it's just kind of lapping up on you in little waves. Yeah, it comes, but it's not bad. And you turn your back and then all of a sudden what happens? A big one comes. And that big one is apt to knock you down. Well, when that big wave hits, if you have composed your grief like David, you've got something to come back to and give expression to that grief. Sing it out. Pray it out. One last note on lament. It should be taught. Though he wasn't crowned yet, what's one of the first sort of kingly acts that David does and makes and commits? He calls for the people to be what? Taught to lament. Taught this lament. Taught to sing this lament. Taught to cry it out. Brothers and sisters, we need lamentation. Our Bible has a whole book in it called Lamentations. So many of the Psalms are Psalms of what? Lament. Here we have David lamenting. We need lamentations because, brothers and sisters, you know this, we live in a fallen, a broken world. We live in a world in which there's death all around us. We live in a world where we put up crosses in the front yard every year because of the death of innocent children in the womb. We live in a world where we are despised and, and we are oftentimes forsaken of those who love us. We live in a world where there are mortuaries. We live in the world where there are graveyards. We live in a world of death and we cannot hide that from one another. You can go to all the gyms you want to. You can get the best diets in the world, but you're going to, unless the Lord Jesus Christ comes again, you're going to die. And we need to face it. And we need a vehicle to use. And that vehicle is lament. Lament. And if we never lament... 
If the church has no place for lamentation, the church is hurting her people. And we are hurting particularly the young ones the most. Plastic smiles and breezy pep rally praise songs only go so far. Spurgeon once said, most of the grand truths of God have to be learned by trouble. They must be burned into us with the hot iron of affliction. Otherwise, we shall not truly receive them. Lamentation is the language of such affliction. Lastly, lessons in loving. David's lament is honest and is an honest lament of love for Jonathan and Saul. There's a lesson there too, right? It's an honest lament of love for Saul. Fallen sinners like ourselves can be enabled to love those who hurt us and hurt us deeply. We can, by grace, love even our enemies. We can, if we look upon them with the eyes of theologians, recognizing that when we look upon one who is hurting us, we're looking upon a one that our sovereign God is using for his glorious, wonderful, good purposes. And those purposes will ultimately be good for us. Verse 23. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. It's also a a, a lament of love that doesn't speak ill of the dead. It could happen. He doesn't. Are we listening? Verse 24, your daughters, O Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. It's a lament of love that, that upholds both, yes, the horrors of war, but also the, honors of, uh, the honor of warriors. Verse 22. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, the sword of Saul returned not empty. It's all these, yes. But what's most clear in his grief is love for Jonathan. And at this point, and I'll be careful with what I say, don't buy into modern anachronistic attempts to make what David says here into rainbow flag rallying cries. It's not. And such attempts are foolish. They are self-justifying. They miss the deep bonds of affection that can form between men who are soldiers. But more pointedly than that, they miss the depths 
of covenant love. Why did David love his friend Jonathan so much? Why was he grieving so much? This is verse 25 again. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother. Jonathan, very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Why? Why does he love him so Because Jonathan had so loved David that he covenanted with him to set aside what could have been his own crown so that crown could go on the head of the one that he loved. He put David before himself and he committed to David before himself. He humbled himself so that David might one day be exalted and he remained steadfast to that covenant. He remained steadfast to that dedication, to that commitment. He was covenantally faithful and David loved him. Shouldn't we so love those who put us before them. Shouldn't you love your brothers and sisters here who have covenanted with the Lord and with you to put you before them? Shouldn't you so love the men who've been ordained and installed, who have made vows to love you before they love themselves? Shouldn't we do the same with our spouses? Shouldn't we have such a deep love and affection for those who are covenantally faithful? But here's the point. If David so loved a covenanting and faithful Jonathan, how much more so should we love Jesus Christ? perfectly faithful one. The faithful one who didn't set aside a mere earthly crown so that we could have a mere earthly crown. The one who set aside his divine glory, heavenly glory, set it aside and stepped down into space and time to the point of being a servant to wash his feet to the point of dying on the cross for his people so that they might have their sins forgiven, so that they might be justified, so that they might be adopted into the family of God, so they might be sanctified, so that one day that they'll be resurrected, they will be glorified, and they shall wear crowns. How much more so should we love this Jesus? We who aren't faithful. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, work in us love. Love for such a loving Savior as is ours. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.